Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right. So today we're going to be looking at uh, yet another emotion in our emotional wholeness series, the emotion called shame. Shame is, is a word that we're familiar with in the English language, but it has some synonyms, some very similar words that you can hear uh, that would also describe the, the same thing. Uh, humiliation, rejection, embarrassment, or disgrace, those are all words that are synonymous with shame. I think that shame is one of the more debilitating emotions that people can go through. Shame has the potential to cripple us relationally, emotionally, spiritually. And if shame goes unaddressed in a person's life, it can define us in negative ways that, we were, that were never meant to happen, causing us to live under a dark cloud of hopelessness and despair. So as we look at shame together this morning, my prayer is that anyone who is struggling under the burden of some sort of shame in their life will see the power that God has to lift them out of it and to free them to walk in his grace and love. I think, I think this is really important. So we're going to just pray that this is going to be God's will for every person here this morning. Let's just pause for a moment. Lord God, as we venture into the dark world of shame, we pray that you would shine a bright light, that you would lead us out of it like a light at the end of a dark tunnel. Lord God, I pray that shame would be put in its place today and that you would have victory over anyone who is experiencing shame on a level that they were never meant to experience. We pray that you would alleviate that pain that shame causes. You would lift their feet from the miry clay and put them on the solid rock. Lord Jesus, you are a rock and you are the one on whom we stand. We cannot stand without you. Amen. All right. So as we do in, in all of these messages, let's just define shame a little bit better for us. Shame is the feeling that shows up in us as a result of something, of something happening that we realize is improper, inappropriate, or wrong. That's what shame is, but it's also important to understand where shame comes from. There's two distinct sources of shame. Either our actions or the actions of others. Shame can show up in our lives as a result of what we have done, but shame can also be a feeling that we experience because of something that someone else has done to us. So here's a couple of examples of shame coming into my life as a result, or first one is a result of something that I had done. In third grade, my teacher, Mr. Schultz, was teaching us a lesson out of a textbook. I don't remember what subject that it was in, but he told us to open our textbooks to a certain page, but don't look ahead to the next page yet. Of course, I snuck a peek at the next page to see what we weren't supposed to look at. And on that page that I wasn't supposed to look at yet, I saw a picture of a red maple leaf. Yes, I grew up in Canada. And it was falling off of a tree. On that page that he actually wanted us to look at, it was just a picture of the leaf, no tree. And then he asked our class the question, so what do you think this leaf is doing? Of course, being as brilliant as I was in third grade, I looked around the room at everyone stumped by this elementary question, and then I raised my hand, and when Mr. Schultz called on me, I said without hesitation, you know, Mr. Schultz, it looks like a leaf that's perhaps falling off of a tree. 
And surprised by my advanced intuition, and yet equally skeptical, Mr. Schultz asked, well, what makes you say that, Jeff? Unsure of how to respond and not wanting to divulge my secret knowledge, I doubled down on my clever retort saying, it just does. <laughs> Mr. Schultz wasn't willing to budge either, so he pressed me asking, but why does it look that way to you? I panicked in that moment and couldn't fabricate a believable explanation quick enough. Before I could say anything, Mr. Schultz blurted out firmly, you looked at the next page, didn't you, Mr. Peters? I was caught. Instantly admitting my wrongdoing, and, or I instantly admitted my wrongdoing, and before I could even finish my admission, Mr. Schultz bellowed, put your head on your desk. I felt shame because of my own actions. I had done something wrong. I disobeyed my teacher's instructions. I tried to use it to my advantage, and now the whole class knew about it. So that's an example of how our own actions can bring shame into our lives. Here's an example of how shame can come on us because of the actions of others. A few years later, now in sixth grade, we were playing basketball outside at recess. The fifth and sixth graders, we had a hoop at one end of the court, and the fourth and third graders had a hoop at the other end of the court. As fifth and sixth graders, our ball got away from us at one point and rolled harmlessly over to the younger kid's end of this basketball court. I walked over to get it, and a fourth grade kid picked it up. And, and held the ball. Standing about seven or eight feet away from him, I held up my hands as to suggest, hey, lob it over here, please. Instead of tossing it gently, he wound up and threw the ball overhand right into my face. All my buddies saw what, would, what had just happened and were speechless. I looked right at that fourth grader and I said, what is your problem? Just then, a teacher who was on duty that recess, Mr. Cron, rushed over, got right in my face, and said, Shine up, boy. Shine up. He never addressed the fourth grade kid who blasted me in the face. Mr. Cron shamed me in front of the whole basketball court that day, even though I hadn't done anything to deserve that shame, but nonetheless, it was directed at me. So show of hands, how many of us have felt shame because of our own actions? Yeah, of course, right? How many of us have felt shame because of the actions of someone else? Yeah, shame is a very common experience for all people who live on planet Earth, unfortunately. So we understand here that we feel shame, right? But we're trying to relate to Jesus and figure out, like, how did he handle this kind of stuff? But maybe the question is, did Jesus feel shame? Sometimes in our emotional wholeness series, we've had to ask and wonder pretty hard to see if Jesus actually felt a certain emotion, but the shame that Jesus felt in his life seems to be pretty obvious. So let's look at a few examples. Jesus felt shame as he was rejected by the people that he chose, the Jewish people. In a summary of Jesus' life at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1 verse 10 and 11 says, He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. So Jesus was not recognized and was in fact rejected by his own people, the Jews. The entire Old Testament had been pointing to Jesus coming to earth, and yet Jesus experienced shame from the very people he created to show the world who he was. Jesus was actually not just rejected in general by the Jewish people, but by the people in his own hometown. Mark 6, verse 1 to 3 says, 
Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. So in Jesus' own hometown, though he teaches with wisdom and they know about his miracles, he is scoffed at and dismissed as an average Joe. In Luke's account of this same story, the people in Jesus' hometown actually become infuriated by Jesus' teaching about the Jews' hardness of heart and God's favor on the Gentiles. They get so They get so angry, in fact, that they try to kill Jesus right there and then. Luke 4, verse 28 to 30 says this. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus was shamed because of who he chose to spend time with also. In Mark 2, 16 But when the teachers of religious law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? This is a double shame, isn't it? Because the Pharisees were belittling Jesus as well as the people that Jesus kept company with. So Jesus was shamed over and over through the events of his life, but also it got increasingly worse during the events that led right up to his death. Jesus Jesus was betrayed by Judas. That's Mark 26. He was deserted by his disciples in in Matthew 26. Sorry, Matthew 26 for the first one as well. There is no Mark 26. Falsely charged with blasphemy, Mark 14. Peter denies three times even knowing Jesus, Matthew 26. Temple guards blindfolded, beat, and spit on Jesus in Mark 14. Roman soldiers mocked and taunted Jesus in Mark 15. Jesus was insulted and ridiculed by at least one of the men who were being crucified right beside him, Mark 15. And finally, in Mark 15, verse 34, it says, Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is this. It was because of our sins. The sins that Jesus willingly took upon himself That's why Jesus experienced the shame and the agony of being temporarily separated from God the Father. Here's one one of the big points that I want you to kind of notice today. We've determined that shame can enter our lives in two different ways, right? Through our own actions, but also through the actions of others. After hearing these examples of how Jesus experienced shame, what kind of shame did Jesus experience? It was always shame from other people. It was never, ever shame because of his own wrongdoing. Because Jesus was a sinless and perfect sacrifice. Never a blemish of sin was on him. In other words, Jesus never did anything himself that could have been considered shameful. Every single instance of shame that Jesus endured, and his name still endures today was shame that came his way because of the sinful actions of other people. What brought Jesus to earth, what necessitated the ministry that Jesus faithfully carried out, and what eventually led Jesus to the cross, 
was the sinful actions of other people. You can think of this, actually, if you look back to Adam and Eve, all the way to the experiences that you may have had in the car ride on the way to church. It was the sinful actions of people throughout history that have put Jesus into the shameful position that he was in. And he did it willingly because of his tremendous love for all of us. I praise God that the shame that, he was, that was relentlessly heaped on Jesus didn't deter him from carrying out his mission to be the savior of the world. Let's, let's pause for one moment here because as we talk about shame and we talk about sin, sometimes we can give shame undue power in our lives that it's never meant to have. So let's just talk for a second about the difference between guilt and shame. There is a difference, and I believe it's, it's quite important. Very simply, guilt is feeling sorry for what we've done, and shame is feeling badly about who we are. Two very big differences, right? Guilt often appears as a gentle conviction by the Holy Spirit saying, Hey, hey, you know that what you're doing right now is not my will for you. I just want to let you know that so that we can make a correction. Like that kind of gentleness. It motivates us to change our ways and keep us running towards God instead of away from him. Psalm 41 verse 4 says, O Lord, I prayed, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. That's someone who feels guilt. And that's their response to that feeling of guilt. Shame drives us to despair and resignation and ultimately makes us want to give up entirely. When Job was going through the worst days of his life, everything was being taken away from him and he was covered with sores. Job's wife demonstrated an attitude of shame in the midst of all his despair. This is from chapter 2 verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain integrity? Curse God and die. That's a voice of shame. That's not a voice of guilt that's leading to remorse and repentance, but it's a voice of shame that is leading someone away from relationship with God. So guilt is a reaction to something that we've done. Oh no, I've sinned. Whereas shame is an identification with who we are. I'm just a pathetic sinner and that's all I'll ever be. Do you hear the difference in those two voices, friends? It's very important. So what does shame do to us? What happens when, when shame gets a, a foothold in our life? Just in the comparison between guilt and shame, this question has already begun to be answered. But I think we need to dig a little bit deeper. While shame never prevented Jesus from living for his father, it can certainly have negative effects on our spiritual lives. It's true that shame affects us emotionally, physically, relationally, etc. But I believe that if we address the spiritual effects of shame first, we will find healing and restoration in all the other areas of life that shame can have a negative impact on. So here's three ways that shame causes negative effects on our spiritual lives. First, shame obstructs right relationship with God. You know, rarely does significant tension get stirred up in our home. We have a, a pretty peaceful home for the most part, but it can happen from time to time. When we become frustrated with each other or upset, you know, maybe something happens, right? Perhaps one of us makes a cutting remark. 
that is hurtful or acts selfishly or makes a joke at someone else's expense and you just kind of cross that line from joking to hurtful. When something unfortunate like that happens and shame or or embarrassment begins to set in because we realize what we've done, we realize that we've crossed a line with each other, sometimes one of us will retreat to our room or we'll busy ourselves in another part of our house because of the humiliation that we feel over what we've done that has momentarily just put a bit of a sting in our normally excellent family relationships. We feel badly even being in the same room as the people that we normally love and care about so much. So here's the question, why is that our reaction? Why do we go hide in our room or or go to another room and busy ourselves with something else? Why do we hide from each other when shame is popping up in our lives. Well, think back with me to the Garden of Eden. The first sin committed was Adam and Eve eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had told them not to, but they ended up eating it anyway because of the deception of the serpent. Now let's pick up this story here from Genesis 3, verse 7 to 10. At that moment that they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. See, like, just like we can hide from each other in our families when we do something wrong against one another, we can be just like Adam and Eve. And we can hide from God when we do something sinful that we know he does not approve of. The shame we feel because of our sin acts as a threat to alienate us from God. In those moments, it's hard to remember God's character, his forgiveness, His love, His mercy and grace, the feelings of shame are strong and they blind us. They prevent us from having that close relationship with God that He desires to have with us and that we desperately need to have with Him. Second, shame separates us from the body of Christ. How many of you have ever heard someone say, not necessarily in Kandu, but just anywhere, I can't come to church. Everyone would wonder, what are they doing here? Has anyone ever heard that kind of thing before, or something close like that? Or people would think it's weird, right? I've heard dozens of times people say that in my life, even right here in Kandu. Or maybe you've heard someone say, well, I'd feel judged if I came to church. Has anyone ever heard someone say something like that? Yeah. So both of those statements sound like someone is hesitant to come to church because of how they think people of that church are going to act towards them. But in reality, those kinds of statements say way more about that individual's struggle with the shame in their own life that they are experiencing. Whether these people who are reluctant to be a part of the body of Christ realize it or not, the problem that they are talking about originates in their own heart and not in the church that they're afraid to come to. Just looking at our own church, CFC isn't a place where only certain people belong. But rather, everyone who wants to come close to God definitely belongs here. CFC isn't a place where anyone has a reason to fear judgment. 
Everyone who comes here is welcomed warmly. I've seen this time and time and time again. So where do these weird ideas about church come from that land in the hearts of people? Here's a verse that might help. Revelation 12 verse 9 says this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the age-old serpent who is called the devil and Satan, he who continually deceives and seduces the entire inhabited world. He was thrown down to earth with his angels, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this verse describes what Satan is trying to do to the entire human population. His goal is to deceive and seduce all people so that we aren't just separated from God, but we're separated from anything that could lead us to God. Satan does this by lying to both non-Christians and Christians alike to make them think that Christians who belong to the body of Christ don't want to have anything to do with anyone else. When we do something that makes us feel shame, it's like there's a little fire that starts in our life. And Satan gladly stands close by with a, with a jerry can of gasoline ready to throw it on that fire of shame to make it worse than it really is so that we would feel ashamed of good things in our life like belonging to a church that is hungry for God. That's why I think that some people say things like, well, everyone in the church would think it's weird that I'm there or I'd feel judged if I came to church. You know what those things are? They're both lies. They're both the tactics of the enemy to separate potential Christians or Christians even from running with the church towards God. Satan has successfully caused that person's shame to now turn into blame against the people of God. So that's the second way in which shame can really wreck us spiritually. And third, shame causes us or makes us selfish. Shame turns our attention squarely onto us. If we sin against God, we can become very forgetful about who God is. And then in a a selfish scramble, we try to make things right by doing things, hoping that we will convince God to forget about all the bad things that we just did. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So how are we saved from our sins? Through grace and faith. Not by being good, not by anything that we would say, well, that's my righteousness. Now now God is clearly going to be convinced he has to accept. We're not saved by our own efforts. We're saved by the gift of God. It's, It's awesome that God wants to give us a gift, Because there's literally no other way that we could receive salvation from him. So this this is the good gift of God. And shame actually tries to, to take our attention off of God's gift to us. Shame wants to take our attention away from grace and faith. And it wants to brainwash us into thinking that we can earn God's favor again by impressing him with our attempts at goodness. Honestly, friends, this is probably the, the one thing in my life that I need to remember the most. Because I'm very aware of how much I mess up. And I, I always think, okay, God, I'll, I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll, I'll, I'll pray and I'll say, I'm sorry, God, I'll do better next time. Has anyone ever prayed a prayer like that? You want to say, oh, God, I'll do better next time, I promise. Just, just forgive me now and I'll never make that mistake again, right? I think a lot of us think that kind of thing. And there are two mistakes that I make in praying like that. 
First is, when I say, I'll do better next time, I'm admitting to God that I think our relationship is very precarious and it will only be sustained if I behave perfectly. That's just not true. Our relationship is what it is, the relationship I have with God because of who God is and his grace and favor, right? I I don't bring a whole lot to the table. I know you guys think I'm really great and everything, but God knows who I really am. And the second thing is, I can't be sure that I will do better next time. I want to, and I might even try to, but it doesn't always work out. I've made the same mistakes hundreds of times in my life, and so have you. Just admit it. That makes it a lot easier to receive grace in faith, or through faith, right? In my shame, I put all the focus on myself, my efforts, my actions, and my attempts to earn God's approval. It just doesn't work like that in the Christian life, and it's never, ever meant to. So we've seen what shame does. Three heinous things. It obstructs our relationship with God. It separates us from the body of Christ. And it causes us to think and act selfishly. So now we need, to, we need a little bit of hope here, right? We need to respond righteously to shame. And I think that there's some great ways that we can do that. One key thing I want to point out here is unlike Jesus, you and I experience shame in two ways that we talked about so far today. Other people can sin against us and attack us in a way that causes us to feel shame, but we can certainly feel shame for the sins that we have committed against God. Both of those experiences of shame should be dealt with appropriately so that we don't become disenfranchised, ineffective, or powerless in our relationship with God. So first, let's quickly just talk about shame from others. Jesus was... Doubted, despised, ridiculed, threatened, rejected, and mocked, all before he even went to the cross. And then when he did go to the cross, those things just intensified. How did Jesus handle all this shame that people were heaping on him? In quietness, in dignity, and in love. He never fought back. He never stooped to someone else's level and shamed them back. Did he rebuke sin? Oh yeah, absolutely. Did he insist powerfully on what was right? Absolutely. But he didn't fight and quarrel with people. He didn't get suckered in to their sinful activities and participate sinfully himself. In fact, as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. If there was ever a time in his life where Jesus may have been tempted to to blast at the people who had unfairly put him to death, I can imagine it might have been there. But in his perfect character, in his sinless character, Jesus instead chose to take the high road and extend forgiveness. For us, the truth is that people in this world and even people in this church are going to do things or say things to you and me that cause us to feel shame. I wish that wasn't true, but it is. People are going to say stupid things to you and me, which humiliate us and are going to cause this burning sensation in us to want to get back at them, right? Revenge. And if we act in revenge, that's shameful. So what do we actually need to do in that moment? Well, we have to copy, of course, what our Savior did and offer forgiveness. Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. Man, 
Does that not just blast a, a fire hose on the fire of shame that wants to creep up in our hearts? Like we have no excuse. We can't say, well, God, they, they did it first. They, they said this, they did that. I'm just trying to uphold my good name as a Christian for your honor. Horse hockey. No, you're not. And no, I'm not. The reason why we retaliate is because we're embarrassed and humiliated. And now instead of acting like our savior and extending grace and forgiveness, we just want to get what's, what's ours. We want to get what we feel we deserve and get revenge on someone, right? And it's, it's, it stinks that we have to talk about this, that other people would put shame on us, even potentially in a, in a church. But that's just the way it is. I'm actually going to leave this point right there because you might think, well, we need a greater explanation. We need to dig deep here, Jeff. I need some help. No, what we really need is forgiveness. That's it. That's it. We just draw the line right there. If we can forgive anyone who shames us, man, we are going to be model Christians who are upholding the, the unity and the integrity that God craves to have in his church. Do you agree, friends? Do you see the importance of forgiveness? Good. Then let's just do it. All right. The one area, though, I think I was kind of battling with this one this week. I went back and forth. I actually had a lot more to originally say about what we should do when people shame us. But I, I think that it's a small minority, not like a vast minority, but like 30% perhaps of people who might deal with the shame of others. And that's their principal source of shame. I really think though a majority of us, 70 or 80% for sure, when shame is really burning in our hearts, it's not because of what someone else has done, but it's because of what we've done. Man, we're our own worst enemy, right? I, I find it harder to let myself off the hook and offer forgiveness to myself much more so than it, it, to offer forgiveness to someone else. Do you guys find it hard to forgive yourselves at times? Yeah. And you know what? For those of you who don't put up your hand, you, can, you need to preach to me because honestly, that's, I think that is the greatest struggle for most Christians to forgive ourselves. If I survey the last 20 years of my life, even the last one year, the last month, even the last week, I can see things that I've done that I'm ashamed of. Sometimes, more, something, sometimes the things are more significant than others, but nonetheless, shameful moments dot the course of our lives. It's hard to forgive ourselves, and it's just as hard to forgive or to forget about our failures. On top of our own conscience that continues to burn against us sometimes, Satan works tirelessly to remind us of our sinfulness. Revelation 12 verse 10 describes Satan as the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. The name Satan in Hebrew actually means accuser. That's his name. So when we do something sinful that we know is wrong, and we know it's not in agreement with God, if that couldn't be bad enough, Satan actually rushes into our lives to rub our nose in our sin, heaping shame on us. He tells us that we can never change. That we'll never be pleasing to God. Even things from years ago that we have received forgiveness for. Satan wants to bring those things back into our memory so that we're crushed under the shame of those things over and over and over again. 
I don't like throwing this word around too easily, but today is the right occasion. That is a spiritual attack. You stubbing your toe in the middle of the night when you go to the bathroom is not a spiritual attack. But this is. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the most regrettable parts of our lives that we keep hidden away from everyone else because the memory of those sinful acts haunts us? It's actually quite simple. And it might sound like too good to be true. But friends, if if you and I allow our hearts to open up to what I'm going to say next, I believe that every moment of shame that pops up in your life and in my life, we can quickly and effectively, supernaturally deal with. Are you interested in that? I am. I know that I struggle with shame. And I don't want, I don't want to give it any room in my life because it doesn't deserve to have it. So let's look at a few verses here from Romans 5 verse 20 to 6 verse 4. Just a little bit at a time. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's grace became more abundant. And we could stop right there, to be honest. And that's like, to me, that's the most incredible verse in the Bible. I think as people, we think that somehow God has a savings account of grace that is limited. We can spend out of it for a while, but after a period of time, God's going to be like, I'm tapped out of grace. Your sin won and your shame now has conquered you, right? There's so many people who'd say, I want to follow God, but you don't know the kinds of things I've done, Pastor Jeff. Like every other person that I sit with in my office, not necessarily from this church, but just people who want general counsel. That's the line that comes out of their mouth. Is that not a shame-filled existence or what? But God's grace is abundant, is more abundant, even as we sin. This verse is telling us that our sin and the shame associated with, associated with it will never outlast the grace and forgiveness that God has for us. Never. Hallelujah, right? Verse 21. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the fact that we need to remember. If we have put our faith in Jesus, we're not ruled by sin and shame. It's just that simple. The gospel says so. This isn't Pastor Jeff's message. I didn't get this from a seminary course because I never went there. I didn't get this from our denominational leaders because we're not a part of one. We have the Bible. We have the best source of truth. The only thing that we need. And it says that we're ruled by grace. Friends, your life is ruled by grace if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. This is a fact that we need to remember. Because if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, sin does not rule over us anymore. Shame may pop up, but it doesn't get to stay in authority over us. 
We're ruled by God's grace and forgiveness. We have right standing with God and we have received the promise of eternal life. If you have received those things, you need to say amen right now. Because that is your promise to claim. And if we, if we allow shame to speak louder than the promises of Jesus, we're living in defeat. And that's not who Jesus has created us to be. That's not the reason that he died. He gave us victory, friends. Shame does not have the final say, and the Bible is the one that says so. So verse, or chapter 6 then says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So being dead to sin means that we're not helpless to the negative effects of sin anymore. We know what is right. We know what is wrong because the Holy Spirit lives within us. We can say no to sin through the power of God in a way that we never could have on our own. Verses 3 and 4. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, we now may live new lives. And those new lives don't start when you die and go to heaven. They start today. They start in the moment of salvation when you believe in Jesus Christ. He says, okay, I'm cutting you loose in my care to live a life that you could have never had without me. Jesus has freed us up to live new lives where we aren't defined by the shame of sin, but we're liberated to partake freely in God's grace, living disciplined lives in righteousness, and enjoying the intimacy that our loving Savior longs to have with us. Isn't that so much better than saying, I'm a miserable sinner, I don't know how God could love me? Man, don't listen to your emotions. We've said this earlier in the series, your emotions are a gauge, not a guide. Shame never leads us to Christ. So why would you listen to it? It's not from him. God never puts shame on you. He never says, how dare you? That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, we need to make a change here. I'm in your corner. Let me walk with you. Let me show you a better way. Allow me to heal you from this brokenness as you repent and confess. And we're going to go to a better place than where you are right now. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's what he sounds like. God and his word are what guide us as we're struggling in shame. They rescue us from the deep emotions that are threatening to plunge us into darkness. And through Jesus, your shame, my shame, has been conquered for all time.